You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. All right, Primal Radio, we're back. What's up, Tommy? Yeah, I'm good. Just landed back yesterday from visiting you. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for coming by. It was uh, a last-minute trip you took, right? You saw the, the fight right. in New York of your con fight. How did you like the fight? It was disappointing. So all the English fans right. were annoyed about the low blow, and then the American fans were kind of annoyed that Amir Khan didn't continue. So not ideal, and I guess we can right. talk about that in more detail on the next Doc Watson boxing update. But right, it was good right. fun. I mean, it's a good night out, and the undercard was very good. Right, and so prior to that, you came you came back to Primal with the first time at this the new Primal gym. How'd you like it? Amazing. I mean, it's a great facility. Nice. It's, it's so big, you can do so much there, and it's right. kind of like got that real family atmosphere. <laughs> it does. There's a lot of shit going on. Even last night, I don't know how many people at once. We had probably 40 boxers on the turf. We had a boot camp in the back. We had probably 20 people doing Muay Thai all at the same time, getting uh, Muhammad ready for his fight this weekend because I got the fight night this weekend. So I'm busy. We'll get right to our guests in, in two seconds. But Primal Fight Promotions, our, our next event is coming up this Saturday, which uh, it's going to be a sold-out show, which is great. So a lot of good fighters. Interesting thing about the fight is the band Salt and Pepper. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Pepper's, her son is fighting on our card. Nice. And uh, he's making his MMA debut. And there's some reality show being filmed there at the same time. It's totally chaos. And, and I think Scraps are making his pro debut this week, too. But anyway... Enough of that. Hey, we got this great guest. That, do you have a, a specific uh, introduction that you want, or you want me to just go ahead with it? I could do the old chestnut of this man needs no introduction. I think, all right. I mean, is that going to be as good as mine? <laughs> no, all right. You too. You get Probably you do not. One. We're both fans. Well, we, right. So we got this uh, uh, gentleman on the show who uh, I'm a big fan of. I've got a ton of his books, very well known and, and a terrific writer and God, I'm just thrilled to have him. I can't believe he actually took the time to be on our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the world-famous author, John Little. John, how you doing? I'm well, boys. How are you guys doing? Wow. Well, hey, thanks. I already said thank you uh, for coming on the show. I'm I'm glad you took the time to be on the show. So I'm thrilled. And our connection, Marshall, you're really good friends with Chris Camp, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, I've known Chris for a long time. Right. So, uh, Tom, I, I didn't quite realize how... Tom had said he ran into Chris, what, not long ago, Tom, right, in the UK? Yeah, he was teaching a seminar over here, and he looked strong, like really strong, really healthy, really fit. And I said, you know, what, what are you doing? He goes, uh, John Little's Big Five, look it up. So, you know, I bought your book and, and, and read that bit. And of course, <laughs> I've read, um, well, I say I've read, I've actually listened to the audio books. Is that, is that cheating? That is. Yeah, The Warrior Within and books like that on, on Bruce Lee. So I think everyone who's into martial arts is familiar with your Bruce Lee books. And there's a whole bunch of awesome stuff on, on the strength and fitness training stuff. So we, we kind of thought we'd do two shows, albeit maybe like a little shorter than normal, on, on each subject. Because there's just so much great content oh, there's there. So much, so, so much stuff to talk about. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, I was just saying that's great. I'm happy, happy to be here with you boys and... Uh... Uh, <laughs> let the discussion go where it goes. There, wherever it goes, it goes. You, did you grow up in Canada? Is that where you grew yeah, up? We were born and raised. I did. Yeah, I was. Um, I grew up in an area called Agincourt, which is in the province of Ontario, just a little distance from Toronto, downtown Toronto. 
Now, you're real big into the fitness and stuff. Were you always into martial arts, too? How did you make that connection with writing a book about Bruce Lee? How did that all come to be? Well, I mean, depending on your age, um, <laughs> we wow. grew up, I grew up in the, in the 70s. So uh, I remember when the Kung Fu TV series came on, and uh, I would never seen anything like that in my life. It intrigued me. So I became a big fan of David Carradine and uh, the Kung Fu series. And yeah. I was about 12 years old, and we were up. Uh, my parents had a cottage, and I was up at the cottage, and there was nothing to do, and like we had no television, no radio, and swimming's fun, but that can get old pretty quick. So I went into town with them one day, and I uh, went into a variety store to buy a comic book or something, and I saw the first issue of Fighting Stars magazine, and it had Bruce Lee and Bob Wall on the front cover. And it said, from, you know, soon to be released movie, Enter the Dragon, which was interesting. But what really caught my eye was that they had an article on the Kung Fu TV series. So I had to buy it. <laughs> and since I was at the cottage for a week, you know, I read the Kung Fu TV series piece several times. And I thought, well, I may as well read the rest of this magazine. Yeah. And they had an announcement at the very front that Bruce Lee had died prior to publication. And they'd mentioned his background. And I remembered him as Cato in the Green Hornet. But the movie sounded so intriguing, the way they wrote about it. I thought, well, I have to see this film when it comes out. And so about two weeks later, as it happened, it was released in a theater not that far from my house. So I went down and saw it, and it was, uh, like most of us in the 70s, it was a life-changing experience. Sure. I came to the theater a different person than when I went in, and yeah. somewhat embarrassed to say that I probably saw Enter the Dragon in the theater no less than 200 times after. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No kidding. And that was just started your whole passion for... Yeah, well, for Bruce Lee. I mean, Bruce Lee became the role model, the, sure. the idol. My wall was a shrine to Bruce Lee from age 13 through till about 19. Wow. Uh, I had every poster. I used to go to Chinatown and get new posters and put them up. And uh, I couldn't learn enough about this fellow. And when the book, The Tao of Jeet Kune Do, came out, it was like, you know, holy writ uh, to me. It was, you know, Bruce's writing. I, I couldn't decipher it at the time um, because I wouldn't come to learn until many years later that I guess what the editors did is they went through a lot of his notes. But Bruce's writings on martial arts started in, well, the 50s, the late 50s, right up until shortly right. before his death. So there was a big evolution of uh, Bruce's views toward martial arts. And to me, it looked, in retrospect, what they did is they took writings, irrespective of what era they appeared in, and put them in this book. So you'd be reading something about, for example, uh, Wing Chun, and, um, and then suddenly it was formless form, and, and I <laughs> didn't know what the nexus was, you know, that connected right. things. So I was bewildered, but uh, like a lot of us in the 70s, we enrolled in the local dojo, um, which you, were... What did you study? Uh, initially, it was Shido Ru uh, Karate, and then uh, we were reading that Bruce was pretty well-rounded, and he was our template, um, uh, wrestling, a little bit of boxing. Uh, we had no Chinese Kung Fu practitioners where I lived, or I would have been right onto that, but just mainly training on my own, actually. Um, and I used to sneak an 8 millimeter movie camera into the theater, and uh. I... <laughs> And then we'd, we'd study the biomechanics of how Bruce threw a kick or how he threw a punch or how he avoided something. And so a lot of my martial education was self-taught. That's uh, great. 
I don't know how you guys experienced it, but when I was growing up in the 70s and we enrolled in karate, we were led to believe that this is what Bruce Lee did. And, right. And that, that was it. Our membership. <laughs> and, um, and so we learned how to do the horse dance and the first form of 27 movements, yep. all of these other uh, things. But I was always impressed, as many people came to be, with Bruce's physical attributes, his physique. Okay. And we were led to believe that it was largely due to his martial arts training that produced this uh, phenomenal physique. And, you know, in looking around at the martial artists that populated our dojo, I just didn't see anything like that. Uh, <laughs> Hardly. Yeah. yeah. So I thought we well, had to be doing something beyond that. So later, fast forwarding many years when I was uh, writing at a couple of bodybuilding publications in California, I sort of got the permission to research a piece on Bruce's training method. It was like a kid in a candy store then because I got to speak to people who worked out with him, uh, pick their brains, what kind of programs did he uh, prescribe to them. When you say permission, John, who gave you permission? The editor-in-chief. I'd floated the idea, and it was shot down right away. I was told that you know nobody who reads our magazine is going to care about Bruce Lee. You know he's what is he 130 pounds soaking wet? You know what's he going to have to share with the people that want to build you know these massive muscles? And I thought, well, man, I mean, that's what got me into the whole bodybuilding thing. I wanted to strengthen my body. I wanted to uh, have better muscular development. And Bruce Lee was the guy. Yeah. And I, to this day, I've seen very few people that displayed the level of his uh, definition, muscular definition, That's right. uh, even in competitive bodybuilding. So I was told uh, sort of grudgingly that if I get any of the champion bodybuilders to get behind the idea that they'd consider it. So I went out and I polled all of the champions at the time, from Lou Ferrigno to Linda Murray to Mike Menser to who was uh, Dorian Yates. And to a person, they all said, oh, he was a huge influence on us. He's one of the reasons we got into bodybuilding. Isn't that amazing? He'd like to do the article. Yeah. All right. How did you get into, I want to step back, how did you get into writing? So you went to college, you, did you want to become a writer? Is that what your passion was <laughs> as well? No, excuse me. No, I, um, I had no uh, ambition to be a writer. Uh, <laughs> if you're passionate about something, that's all you want to talk about. That's all you right. want to Yeah. And so, you know, if you met me when I was 15 or 16 and you didn't want to talk about Bruce Lee, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> How'd that work with girls? <laughs> <laughs> well, not very well, but I think back. Not very well. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, uh, that was my burgeoning interest. So, you know, in high school, I wrote an essay on Bruce Lee. And then when I got into exercise, I sort of, gravitated toward and initially toward those who were of slighter muscular build but more definition people like frank zane for example right yeah. and then frank zane of course gave way to arnold because he was the biggest thing in to ever hit bodybuilding maybe to this day yeah and that in time in turn rather led me to mike menser who was the first one to bring science to bear in my estimation on the subject of bodybuilding and he, I, there was a resonance with Menser that struck me to very uh, being very similar to Bruce Lee in that he was an iconoclast. He stood out from the convention. He didn't uh, believe in what, what I would call the style, although it was the Arnold method was sort of the de facto way for all bodybuilders to train. And, yeah. and Mike really um, stood that on its head. 
but he had good scientific reasons for it. So I liked Mike quite a bit, and I thought he had something of value to impart. And um, he was sort of unceremoniously dumped out of the magazines and for a while because he didn't toe the corporate line. So I began to write articles basically about Mike and about his methods and, and the approach of uh, sort of more intense, shorter, less frequently performed workouts. And uh, actually the first uh, publication I wrote for was Bodybuilding Monthly out of the UK. Nice. So uh, I wrote for that and then the British Flex and that led to a job in California writing for Joe Weider. So, so when the Bruce Lee article came out, was it well received? Yeah, incredibly well received. You know, I can't see when I'm writing it beyond my own interest. But uh, it led to some interesting things because I had made it so thorough. It was like a, you know, a, a treatise on how Bruce Lee trained with everything from his aerobic work to his resistance training to his isometric work and had lots of interviews and lots of quotes. And in the course of researching the piece, I had reached out to his widow, Linda Lee Cadwell, and explained to her what I wanted to do. And I didn't even think she would return the call, to be honest. She sent me over some nice color photocopies of some of his writings on exercise, which was awesome. Anyway, after the article came out, as is often the case in publications, if an ad comes in at the 11th hour, they have to make room for it. So they cut some material out of my article. Oh, wow. I felt bad about that, and I had sent uh, Linda, I might have phoned her actually, and just said, listen, I'm apologizing in advance. Uh, I said, this piece was very, very comprehensive. And I said, it's a little less so now because of this new ad that's come in. And I said, all the research I've done and the people I've spoken to, I said, you know, I could easily you know, fill a book with it, but it, it's, it, it was a more substantial article. And she said, well, if you think you can fill a book with it, why don't you write one? Oh, wow. A minute for me to, for that to register. Yeah, and I saw. You know, I, well, I would love to write a book about it. You know, and I, I didn't think it would go any further than that. And she said, "Well, why don't you come visit me in Idaho, and uh, we'll go through the storage locker of Bruce's stuff and see what." Uh, <laughs> so all this stuff was just kept in a storage locker. That's so funny. Oh yeah, and uh, and it blew me away because we went to the storage locker together. She met me at the airport. Well, actually, when she met me at the airport. Yeah. Uh, and I got off the plane, uh, she handed me two volumes of Bruce's original writings and said, wow. here's a good place to start. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I was looking around for security. You know, it's yeah, like they're the, gonna tackle you. every page. You almost wanted to be wearing latex gloves. To, to <laughs> but I went to my hotel that night and I read every page and met with Linda the next day and off to the storage locker we went. And I mean, to me, it was Aladdin's cave. And as soon as she opened the door to the storage locker, it was like, wow, you know, this is Bruce's stuff. So long story short, I ended up returning home to California with about 40 pounds of photocopied material from that first visit. And I went back again, came back with about another 30 to 40 pounds worth of photocopied material. So I had copies of almost everything that was in the archive. And then it was a questionable to do. I've got to go through this. And I thought, well, the best way to understand it, and if you're going to write about something, you have to do your best to try and absorb all of it, would be to transcribe every word that Bruce wrote into my computer. And what an undertaking it, that must have been. Yeah, it was a big, a big job, but it was interesting because it was kind of like you were spending time with Bruce, right? I'm seeing material that no one else, aside from, in some cases, Bruce himself, but the family as well, perhaps, had seen. So, it's like, oh, that's interesting. And, and once I did that, I could see 
for example, where the Tao of Jeet Kune Do was a bit of a, a hodgepodge. Right. I clearly right. see what was written <laughs> in the 60s and 50s and, and how when he uh, had injured his back and he was reading more philosophy, specifically uh, Krishnamurti, who was all about total freedom from any type of uh, intellectual brain. <laughs> Um, that Bruce's thinking went that way with martial arts. You shouldn't be constrained. It should be whatever you want. So yeah. those writings became a different, there was a different file for those writings. And anyway, I ended up producing three very thick volumes of transcriptions. And one was his writings on physical conditioning. And the second were his martial arts writings. And the third or were his uh, philosophical writings. And so when we had our first meeting, of what became the Jung Fan Ji Kundo nucleus. I, and that's incidentally where I first met Chris Kent. I gave a copy of that to everyone who was an, uh, a member because I thought this should be your reference guide. And Linda agreed with me so that they could see what Bruce thought about these things. If you're going to represent his art, you should know, you know as much as you can about both the art and the subject. When you're putting all that together, I mean, I guess none of it was in order. You maybe couldn't tell what was important well, it was all important to me, but I didn't know what Bruce might have changed his mind about, for example. Yeah. Having written the fact that it had been preserved indicated to me, at least, that he did attach some significance to it. The significance is only evident when you put place it in context. So that's why one of the first books I did was called The uh, Tao of Kung Fu. When he first came to America, his idea was that the Chinese martial arts were the granddaddies of all other martial arts, and therefore the truth would be within the Chinese martial arts. Right. His first idea was he wanted to create a super system, a kung fu system, based on the best of all of the Chinese martial arts. In time, that belief gave way when he became exposed to other forms of combat, such as Western boxing, and seeing the champions of that sport and how they moved and how they their hands. And certain grappling arts got his attention. Um, and impressed him. Judo was very big at the time, as was surprisingly jujitsu. But it wasn't. There was no flavor of Brazilian at the time. It was just jujitsu. Yeah. So he had a lot of books on those arts, old wrestling stuff. He really liked the old, like 1800s, anything to do with wrestling from the 1800s, because they didn't have a lot of illegal moves. And then, of course, when he created Jeet Kune Do, there's almost a, a two sides to that art. The first one was predicated largely on the principles of fencing, which was stop hit, intercepting. When it moves, you hit him before, you know, offense is your, is your defense. But then he recognized that even that was a bit restrictive. You know, sometimes someone isn't going to attack and allow you to intercept him, so then what? So then he recognized that a martial artist has to be without restriction. You can't have a method or a way because by definition that excludes every other way. So you have to right. remove those boundaries and just be able to adapt to what's in front of you. So that was sort of Jeet Kune Do in its later stages, and consequently, it was not an art for the masses, if you will, it, because it required the individual to cultivate those talents uh, within him or herself. Were you able to like validate this with people? So let's say, for example, you've got a theory based on what you've read and maybe some stuff that you've trained. Would you like go to people like Dan or a Tim Tackett and kind of say? you know, or Chris Kent, et cetera, and say, I think this, let's see whether this is what he meant. The cool thing about that was all of those guys at one time or another were in the nuclear, that group that we had. So right. they were for that. If I drew an inference, it was completely wrong. 
I was quickly corrected. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you were. By yeah. guys that had the, the knowledge to do so. But I found that it wasn't that complex. It wasn't that confusing. It was pretty, Bruce's thought process with regard to martial arts was pretty linear. So it was easy to track. And you know, people like, the people I put a lot of confidence in were people that spent a lot of time privately with Bruce, not just in a class type setting where okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. With him at his home where he'd be ruminating about different aspects of martial art and, and would be more casual with his conversation. People like Ted Wong, Herb Jackson, who spent an inordinate amount of time with Bruce. And in the case of Herb, not always training. You know, he, he was a general handyman. He was just there, but he spent a lot of, a lot of hours with the Lee family. Right. So I would bounce a lot of this off of Ted and Herb because they were good buddies. They used to come over to my house in California a lot. And, you know, they'd come over at, you know, seven in the evening and they wouldn't leave till three in the morning. So it, it, that's all we do was talk. We'd go over Bruce's papers. And, and then uh, once the nucleus was formed, well, then I had this surplus of knowledge that uh, surrounded me. At that point, I hadn't really written my, my books initially. I had just transcribed Bruce's writings. And so they each got a copy of that. And then every time we would meet again, sometimes they'd say to me, wow, I, I didn't know that, but I suspected that about uh, Bruce's thinking. And other times they'd say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what he taught, um, this, this and this. So uh, it reinforced what they had learned. And I think in some cases where they hadn't seen the material, it might have opened their eyes to other aspects of Bruce that well, they that's might. That's pretty interesting. Now, how are you, when you're going through all those notes, how are you able to keep your own prejudices from influencing what you're transcribing and your take on it in the books? Which, by the way, I think you did a phenomenal job of it. But I mean, the transcribing is fine. You, there's no room to put your thumbprint on Correct. anything right. on that. Uh, when it came to actually coordinating and collating that material for specific titles, my rule of thumb was to keep my thumbprint off it. If it was Bruce's writings, to me, it was like there's no question who, who people want to hear from. I'm a footnote in this process, and I recognize <laughs> it very early on. But yeah, Bruce yeah. was the guy. And I put myself in the shoes of myself when I, I was 12 or 13. It was so easy to be misled. I was misled by my karate instructors, for example. Mm -hmm. And if they told me that Bruce Lee spent eight hours a day doing uh, Zen Ching Kotai, you know, the first kata of, of uh karate that I was taught, uh, I would have believed it because I had no, no reason to doubt them. I had other people tell me, oh, you know, this guy here, he's much better than Bruce Lee. He beat the crap out of him once. And uh, <laughs> I didn't have any reference living in Canada. But right. so I thought, okay, my audience is that guy, the guy that wants the truth. And he doesn't want to hear from an intermediary. He doesn't want to hear from someone who's going to tell you how it was. He wants to hear directly from Bruce. So I saw my role in the books as fastening a platform from which Bruce could speak to directly to them. So my thumbprint didn't go on any of his writings. There was no room for interpretation. That was just Bruce. In some books, my first book, which was called The Warrior Within, uh, that was written prior to all of the material that I was exposed to. So I would quote Bruce, and then I would provide an illustration or an example of an application of that. So that was my, I wouldn't call it a contribution, but that was my role, if you will, in writing that book. But the other books, the ones of Bruce Lee's writings, I kept my thumbprint off because I thought that's the last thing anybody needs. Sure. I had a hierarchy in my mind, and it was first, 
the first one was if you've got video and audio of Bruce speaking, that's the most authentic. Second, audio. Third is writing. Anecdotal material was a distant fourth. Right. So I would always go to the source on that. And, and again, keeping in mind that I felt that my audience were, were people who wanted to hear directly from Bruce. I didn't. And in fact, I counseled in one of the introductions, I think, to people, you know, I kind of did a mea culpa. I said, you know, it's very, very dangerous to stand too close to the river of another man's thoughts. You did, and which is beautifully written, by the way. That's it's one of my favorite things you wrote. From the bank and swept along with the current, and you yeah. lose your own thoughts. And, and I, I mean, there were times when all you do is get up and you read someone else's writing for eight hours over a five-year period that your mind automatically locks into their thinking process. And that's fine if you're doing that sort of a job, but it's a terrible thing to do if you want to develop yourself because there's no room for you in that. Your job is simply to say, listen to what this guy says and to understand it. So if someone asks a question about an ambiguous passage, you have a, a decent handle as to you know, what Bruce was thinking when he wrote it. But I was very conscious of the fact that You've got to tread a very fine line there because I didn't want to um, I didn't want to become an authority necessarily on another man's life um, because it's a pretty silly thing to be an authority on. You know, the, right. the, it's the real challenge is to be an authority on your own life, and that can take a lifetime. So, the Bruce Lee sidetrack that I had in the in the '90s, while very educational and enlightening, was not without a, a bit of risk. And it is that way. I find it in the Bruce Lee world, but it's like that in, in any enterprise in which an individual achieves a tremendous amount of fame. People want to uh, latch onto it and they want to become the guy, you know, shake the hand of the hand that shook the hand of John L. Sullivan. You know, they want to, <laughs> want, to be, they want to be the authority. And uh, that was the last thing in the world I wanted. And to this day, if someone posits himself as an authority on Bruce Lee, I, I just kind of shrug my shoulders. It's not, you know, it's like really, you know, once you find out about yourself first, Bruce was, Bruce did his thing. The only authority on Bruce was Bruce. And when he passed away, so too did the authority on Bruce Lee. I had a question earlier in my, in my head. Did you ever ask Linda what possessed her <laughs> to say, why don't you come out and write a book? Had she not done that in that moment in time, None of these books may have ever been written. I don't know that I ever asked her that specifically, but I, I believe that that aspect of Bruce's, uh, or that attribute of Bruce's, hadn't really been explored very thoroughly. So I think Linda was always interested in people that saw something different in Bruce and why. And I think the physical fitness exercise side, and even the philosophy side, she liked, because I think she experienced all of those facets of Bruce. But, of course, the brightest light always shone on his martial attributes. It must have been a little bit frustrating for her. You know, she had to acknowledge, yes, he was an exceptional uh, martial artist. There was more to him than that. At least as she knew him, as his wife, she experienced and It wasn't martial arts that, you know, she fell in love with, Bruce. Uh, far more to the man than that. And those facets, I think, all contributed to his martial arts. I, I mean, to, from my vantage point, I believe that how he thought dictated, uh, everything else flowed from that. How he choreographed a fight scene, how he uh, interacted with other people, how he fought, and how he thought about fighting. So 
the mind was the big thing for me. And it's why one of the highlights for me was going through his personal library and going through pages which he had uh, annotated. And again, no one had seen this material before. So it's like, ah, so that registered with Bruce, that statement. These things were interesting, but I think they provided different uh, facets of the man that could be explored. And I said once before that I always thought martial artists were poor torchbearers for Bruce with the belief that if all you can say about a guy is that he could kick your ass, you really haven't said much about the guy. Um, And I always use the example of Jack Dempsey. There was a guy who indisputably was one of the greatest boxers in the first last century. No question about it. But who talks about him today? Nobody. He was a great great fighter. But if that's it, if that's where it ends, then each generation brings with it a new crop of great fighters. And we've had lots of great fighters since Jack Dempsey. So he's just one link in the chain. And if that was how Bruce Lee was going to be viewed as a great martial artist in the 20th century, well, we're now in the 21st century. So Bruce becomes just another link in the chain. Before him was Masoyama, you know, and, and, and Marshall and Musashi and uh, going further back and people like that. I thought, well, you know, what's interesting is that Plato, the philosopher, was actually a wrestler in ancient Greece. It's, in fact, Plato isn't even his name. It's a nickname. It means the broad, as in broad-shouldered. And he won the Pythian game something like three or four times for wrestling. But if it had ended at that, we wouldn't know about Plato. Not at all. years later. But because he had a philosophy, which had uh, a broad application to life issues, we're still talking about him 25 years after his passing. And I saw a similar thing with Bruce. I thought, well, you know, if Bruce had left behind no philosophy whatsoever, if his mind wasn't philosophically mm-hmm. inclined, then it begins and ends with his martial arts uh, technical skills. You know, sure enough, that will recede into the background like the wake behind a ship over time. It's just the nature yeah. of it. But because he also had a philosophy, I thought, well, now he's what he says here in his philosophy has a much broader application to way more many people than just as combative uh, technical beliefs. So I just thought that was a fascinating aspect of Bruce. And, and again, the philosophy is what informs the martial art. It doesn't other ways. So I thought, well, this is really cool because his philosophy not only helped create this uh, revolutionary martial art of his, but it also influenced every movement uh, and decision during his waking hours during the day. So I wanted to learn more about that. And share it with other people in the thought that perhaps they may uh, see some benefit beyond martial arts as well. Obviously, it's been a long time since you've done any material on Bruce Lee. Do you have any plans or desires to do that in the future, or has that ship sailed? I think that ship sailed for me. There's times when I think, oh, that would be really interesting to do, but you know, then other life things come up, and I recognize it probably wasn't as important as I thought it was at the time. Uh, I think the timing was good for what I did in that it allowed Bruce Lee to speak for himself. During the 90s, there was a period of time where various martial artists, both in and outside of the Jeet Kune Do community, uh, claimed to be uh, speaking uh, authoritatively on Bruce's art. And I thought, you know what, none of these guys, with all due respect, were wearing the shoes for that. Uh, you know, the best spokesman for Bruce Lee was and will always be Bruce Lee. So I kind of saw the function as, okay, guys, let's hear from Bruce on what he believes on these things. And that was the, the result was the book series of his writings. 
I think that was a necessary function that was fulfilled. Now, you know, anyone could have done it. Uh, you know, so that was just serendipitous that I happened to be on uh, the scene. But okay. uh, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, great. I, I just don't look. I, I you're very humble. Bullshit, I think it's just it? being intellectually honest. I mean, anyone who grew up in the '70s and and there were, you know, probably there was tens of thousands of us, if there was one of us, would have approached it with the same reverence uh, and respect that that I did. And the only other thing that came out of that that I was pleased about was to be able to complete uh, his last film, The Game of Death for him, in the manner that he had first envisioned by happening upon his script notes in the Lee Estate archives and quickly recognizing that what passed for The Game of Death in 1978 was nothing like what he had envisioned. So to be able to put that together and lend him my hands, if you will, to edit the film the way he had intended was nice and I think a necessary thing to occur just for people who were, who cared about what you know the the actuality of Bruce, what he actually believed, what he actually had envisioned for these things. But apart from that, I don't see my role as being significant or profound. Uh, I was you know simply a guy at the time that was able to advance something a little further downstream. And once that was done, it was someone else's job at this point. Uh, you also did a bunch of you know documentaries and. Film stuff. How did that did that come to fruition the same way, just by happenstance, or did you set out to do those or those projects in your head that you wanted to do? And like most of it, it's um, it it just kind of evolved. It was you know it's funny. Uh, Joseph Campbell, the great myth educator, uh, often spoke about the the Indian myth of Indra's net. And just briefly, according to Hindu mythology, there is this vast net that spread over the entirety of the universe. And in every joint of the net, there is a jewel. And if you look into any one jewel deeply enough, you will see reflected in it all of the other jewels in the universe. And uh -huh. essentially what it means is if you're passionate about one thing, suddenly you will find talents and attributes within yourself that you didn't know existed. So I think that kind of happened with me with Bruce. For example, I got very interested in Bruce Lee, which led to my interest in his fitness. That led to my research into fitness and my writing about it. So it cultivated some writing skills. Because I was interested in Bruce Lee, I was I was able to produce a film called Bruce Lee in His Own Words, which was sort of based on those same concepts, let Bruce speak for himself. As the film needed a soundtrack, I ended up composing music for it, which I didn't know I could do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I recognized when I saw his script notes that you know, the game of death that was released by Golden Harvest in 1978 did not reflect accurately his belief or his philosophy, and that there's no reason why we shouldn't put that together and then wrap a documentary around that explained his evolution of his thought with regard to martial arts. So tried to track down the footage. I think I went to Hong Kong in 93, went to Golden Harvest, and was almost shown the door because they said, we don't really care about Bruce Lee. You know, it's Jackie Chan now, and nobody's that nostalgic. And so I got a call many years later from, and probably it was an email from Bay Logan, who uh, was working for Media Asia, who had acquired the Golden Harvest archives. And he said, we found the footage. Are you interested? And of course, I was. And I had the Bruce's script notes to stitch it together in the way that he had shot it. So that was kind of fun, because I remember the first book I ever read on Bruce Lee was called... The Legend of Bruce Lee by Alex Ben Block. Uh, 
And there was a photo from Game of Death of Bruce blocking a kick from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And underneath it, it said words to the effect that Bruce and Kareem working out on the set of The Game of Death, a movie that was never completed or released. So it was nice to get it completed and released uh, in the manner Bruce had envisioned. But yeah, all of that kind of, it it was uh, sort of a natural evolution. It wasn't anything that I had planned to do. Now, going back, when you reflect upon all that, would you have approached any of that differently? Or do you think it came out how you envisioned it or how it was exactly supposed to be? Yeah, I don't, uh, I have no regrets at all about either the writing or the film. I, I am, uh, that was a, a passion project for me to the extent that actually I didn't take a nickel out of it. Every penny that we got for the budget went into the film. Because wow. The goal was to do right by Bruce. My rationalization was, if it's good, uh, it'll be a good electronic business card for me to do other films. And that that was adequate. You know, I wasn't doing it to make money. In fact, I never made much money during the time I was doing any of that stuff. <laughs> I, uh, I had to supplement my income when I was doing the Bruce Lee books by writing uh, bodybuilding books. No uh, kidding. Yeah. There was, I thought. I had, uh, what, my wife and, well, we were living in the States, so my wife couldn't work, and we had four children. So wow, I, I think so the Slee books, which were released like three a year over a period of three years, um, I think the first year it was $16,000. That was it. That was my income. Oh, shit. <laughs> royalties by about year four or five, but still, um, you know, the... The sixteen thousand, which was my portion of the advance, you know, it doesn't go very far with family four. So not at all. So yeah, I, there was no uh, there was no life changing revenue coming in from the Bruce Lee project. So it was just something that again, you feel strongly about it. You know, most people have a cause of some sort, be it religion or politics or whatever. And uh, you know, that part of me from my youth said Bruce Lee. That was my cause at the time. If Bruce Lee wanders into your gym right now. What would you ask him? I would, I would love to just sit down over coffee with Bruce Lee and just let the conversation free for him. I think uh, he was just such a charismatic, intelligent young man uh, that there'd be no shortage of questions. I'd ask him about training. I would ask him about uh, what exercises he performed. I'd ask him about how he dealt with adversity. What was his recommendation for that? What, uh, in the bigger picture are the really important things uh, in life. And if he could go back and do it over again, what would he emphasize? And in 2019, how do you kind of perceive his legacy? I, I get the odd martial arts who's like, oh, he, he wasn't that good or he was just into the movies or he couldn't fight or something like that. And then I get the other side where it's like, he's still by far the most influential martial artist in, in many, many martial artists' lives. What's your perception on that and how his kind of legacy is, it should be perceived today? Well, I, I uh, would probably agree with your latter assessment. I don't think there's a martial artist, including the current crop, that uh, have a lot of media behind them that can equal his legacy uh, by any means. I mean, there is no statue of GSP in Bosnia. You know, there is no... Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, in mainland China, he's, he's right up there with the gods, you know, and which is interesting because it took a long time for him to be embraced in mainland China. Uh, I think as a fighter, I, I think it's indisputable that he was he was exceptional. He was the best, certainly of his era, 
and is, uh, in many respects, the, the template that we all look to uh, presently in terms of versatility, in terms of conditioning, in terms of adaptability to a, uh, an unfortunate situation that one might find my, oneself in. You know, when people say he couldn't fight, that, to me, that's, that just reveals that they haven't done their research. He was a very, very competent fighter. And you don't get world champions. You know the egos in the martial arts world, especially uh, egos of those who are champions. They don't come to someone else and train with them unless they feel he's got something up on them and they want to find out what it is. But he had Joe Lewis, Chuck Norris, Mike Stone, who at the time were the reigning uh, big shots. He also had other really talented martial artists like Louis Delgado coming to him for instruction. Hayward Nishioka, who was one of the greatest uh, judo men uh, of the air. In fact, he was a Pan Am gold medalist. And he told me a very interesting anecdote about Bruce. He said, like, he was so blown away by Bruce, he brought a physiology professor over from the University of California to examine him. He said, like, this guy's just a freak. Like, I've never seen anything like this in the martial arts, and I've seen freaky things in the martial arts because he, he trained in Japan as well as in the United States. Hayward's the sort of guy who's very, very candid. He's very, very honest. There's no pretense about him, which makes him somewhat refreshing in the martial arts world. But he said, you know, whenever Bruce and I would spar, he said it was it was ridiculous. He said I felt like an amateur. He said he said I was a black belt in karate. I was Pan Am gold medalist in judo. He said I couldn't do anything. He kept shutting me down. And he said I got so pissed off that I told Bruce once I just stopped when we were sparring. I said that's it. You know I'm not doing this anymore. He said what would you do, Bruce, if I lay on the ground and you had to come to me there because that's my domain. You know I'm I'm I like grappling and all that. And Bruce said well he said. Uh, you know, I'll admit, he said, my, my grappling isn't my strongest suit. He said, so I guess my advice to you was would be that I, I wouldn't do anything. He said, but don't get up. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, was, he was a great martial artist, full stop. And uh, he also happened to be a, uh, someone who could convey that. I think his acting abilities were underrated. I mean, we've all seen martial artists, especially since the 70s, who've made movies and Chuck Norris is in that list, who are stiff and wooden when they perform. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's choreographed so they beat up 20 guys, and you leave thinking, okay, and then another movie comes out, and you see James Bond beat up five or six guys using martial arts. But you watch Bruce Lee, and suddenly it's believable, and that's because of his acting ability. He was a tremendous actor in the sense that he could infuse his performance with real human emotions that cut across racial barriers so that you could relate as a human being to being in that situation, the anger he would express, the, the semi-joy he'd see if he saw an opening. And even martial artists, I saw Joe Rogan on a podcast the other day watching The Way of the Dragon fight for the first time. And I think he might have gone into it thinking, well, Bruce Lee was a good martial arts actor. He goes, but, because, man, his moves are authentic. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th I think I've just experienced the occasional hater, so to speak. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, it, they're in the vast minority, but yeah. I think it's, it is bred out of ignorance and perhaps jealousy. Yeah, I mean, the hating thing, I used to blow my mind. I didn't understand it. How can you hate that guy? But now I see it with everything. doesn't matter what your opinion is. Someone is going to be against it. And yeah. you just accept that. You just accept right. that's human nature, I guess, that there are going to be people that simply are going to dislike something because you're holding this individual up higher than the level that they are at. 
and they don't care for that, and they take it personally, and so they they take it as their goal to try and tear it down. So be it. Uh, you're not going to change that ever. But the, that's why it's so important, again, to think for yourself on these matters. Have your own uh, criteria by which you assess someone's competence or lack thereof, and um, be happy with that. Uh, long ago, I stopped trying to win people over to a belief because, it, number one, it's it's never going to happen, and number two, it wouldn't be right if it could. Someone had to read. I, I want to, and as far as Bruce, we're going to go on to your other stuff. One of your books, and this is a difficult question. I know what I believe it is, and I can tell you, uh, if, they, if if you had to choose one of your books to read on Bruce Lee, would there be one better than the other to read, or they all bring a unique view um, to? I think the story? it depends on what the individual's interest is. Right. If you like Chinese Kung Fu, then the Tao of Kung Fu is a great book um, for that because Bruce speaks ex uh, extensively about that. If it's Jeet Kune Do and you want to separate the wheat from the chaff as to what the art is or isn't, then I'd say Commentaries on the Martial Way is a great book. If you like Bruce's philosophy, Striking Thoughts is quite interesting. The Warrior Within, my first book, goes into that in greater detail, but as some of the writing in there is mine in terms of explaining certain passages, I would not give it the same gravitas in terms of its authenticity because the most authentic is just Bruce, full stop. So that would be striking thoughts. And the other one is Bruce's writing, so lots of authenticity with interpretation. So while my personal favorite is probably The Warrior Within, that could be for ego purposes rather than... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, then, why not? Yeah, it depends. Again, just depends what you're looking for. Right. My, my guess is most people would want to get just the authentic material. So I would look to the title. I have all the books, and they are uh, before Kindle and stuff. They are all high. I wish I had one in front of me right now to show you uh, through Skype, but uh, they're all highlighted and, and beaten up and torn apart. That means the books were used <laughs> and in view. And, and I was actually looking at them at my office at the gym. I was looking at them the other day and going, God, I got to go buy some new ones <laughs> because they're so, I will keep those, but new ones just to be on for show, I guess. But same thing, by the way, speaking of Tim Tackett's, well, of Tim Tackett books, his original ones with Chris Kent, you know, right. the kickboxing books and stuff. I mean, they're highlighted, beaten up, torn. And I'll put, those are the books I bought originally and, and helped me understand, you know, what I was doing or try, attempting to do. But look, John, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about Bruce and your books. And and this was part one of our two series, because the next part of our conversation is going to be on the, the strength training, the building your business, so on and so forth. If you want to listen to us, you can listen to us. You can find us on primalradio.net. We are available on all great podcasts. So uh, thank you and peace out. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.